came across this interesting deal the other day. Back in 1971, there was a war between India and Pakistan. India sent in to Pakistan a number of troops and tanks uh, invaded. And there was one particular section of desert out there where there was a guy named Major, uh, let me see if I can get his name right, Chanpuri. Uh, he was of the Indian Army, and he was in a, they called it a fortified sand dune. I don't know how you picture that, but when I picture a fortified sand dune, I kind of picture a sandcastle. But he's out there in the desert on what they call a fortified sand dune, and uh, they, in the middle of a night one night, it's in December 1971, they're bombarded with fire. None of the men in the initial bombardment die, they do lose a few camels. But after this bombardment, Major Chanpuri and some of his men peeked up over the ridge of their uh, fortified sand dune, and they look up, and coming their way, right? So remember, Major Chanpuri, and he's got 100 men. They've also got a jeep. They've got one jeep. So it's Major Chanpuri, 100 guys, and one jeep. And they look up over the sand dune, and here come 55 tanks, 3,000 men, and 24 artillery vehicles headed right towards their fortified sand dune. And the major looks at that and knows that the situation is pretty dire. 101 guys against 3,000 men and against 55 tanks, and they have a jeep with a gun on top. That's it. He turns around to his men. He comes back down into the sand dune. And he says, men, there is still hope. Hope is not lost. We can still do this. And they began to hold off the barrage throughout the day. They called in for reinforcements, and the report they got was, we can't send you any air support. Our planes are not ready. Hold on as long as you can. And so there they are, 101 guys against 3,000 men, against 55 tanks, against 24 artillery vehicles, trying to hold out for as long as they can because there's no air support coming. And the whole time, Chen Puri's telling his men, there is still hope. There is still hope. Night falls that evening. And as night falls, the uh, army sends in their tanks. But the men in that fortified sand dune continue to hold off attack after attack after attack. All the while, Chen Puri's still chanting, there is still hope. There is still hope. Daylight comes the next morning after a sleepless night for every man in that sand dune. And at daylight, they look up over the ridge and they see they have not only withstood the overnight attack, they have obliterated 12 of the tanks using their jeep-mounted weapon. And as they look up over the ridge, the sun comes, those 12 destroyed tanks are there, but the other 43 tanks are getting ready as, uh, along with the surviving men of those 3,000 who were coming to attack. And as they get ready to face whatever onslaught was going to come at daylight, they hear the buzz of airplanes. Their army got their planes ready. And those planes came flying in from behind them and started picking those tanks off like fish in a barrel. Because I don't know if you are very familiar, tanks have a hard time moving on sand. And so they're knocking these tanks off left and right. And they obliterate the troops. Not only the troops, only eight of the original 55 tanks were able to escape. And so not only did Chan Puri's chant of there is still hope survive, 
at the end of the day, there wasn't just hope. There was complete victory against overwhelming odds. And what we're going to see today in the story of the resurrection, there is complete victory against overwhelming odds. No matter what you might be experiencing or what life might be telling you or what other people are whispering in your ears, there is still hope. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Uh, if you're going to use a Bible in the pew rack, it is there in front of you. It's on page 835. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, if you're here today and you do not have a Bible, you can take whatever Bible's there in front of you, take it home. That's yours. Free gift. That's why they're there for you to use. If you don't have one, keep it. Happy Easter. Uh, that's your Easter present today. Uh, you can take that home with you. You see here, Matthew 27, we're going to start down in verse 50, but let me kind of put it in context. So Jesus has been ministering in the public for a couple years. And it comes to a head when he comes back into Jerusalem for Passover. He does miracles that week. He teaches a lot that week. And it gets to be Thursday evening of uh, Easter week. And Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. Towards the end of the meal, one of his disciples leaves the room and goes and accumulates a mob. Well, while that's going on, Jesus takes his other 11 disciples and they go out to the Mount of Olives, which is a hill just right outside Jerusalem. And they're out there on this hill and Jesus is praying. He puts eight of his disciples in one section, tells them to pray, takes three of them to another section, tells them to pray, and then Jesus goes off by himself and prays. And by this time, it's really, really late at night, like close to midnight-ish. It's right around, it's really dark, it's really late, and Jesus goes off and he prays, and then he comes back and he finds his disciples in their groups asleep, and he says, guys, wake up. That was for the kids in the room who had prom last night. Wake up. I told him I'd call him out if I see him sleeping. Uh, and, and he says, wake up, just stay awake and pray with me. And then he goes off and he prays one more time. And then he comes back to him again after he finishes praying. And he finds them all asleep again. He says, guys, you couldn't just stay awake just for a little bit. He says, let's just get up now for my betrayer is at hand. And he looks up and here comes Judas with the mob carrying their torches and their soldiers and they come to Jesus and they say, which one of you is Jesus? Judas goes up, gives Jesus a kiss to the signal that here he is. This is the guy. And uh, they arrest Jesus. And as they arrest Jesus, his 11 disciples who were still loyal fled. So they fled. So even though they were loyal, they were loyal to a point. And their, point, their loyalty had a cap, at least at this point in their relationship with Jesus and they fled they ran they thought Jesus is getting arrested we're with Jesus this is association we're going to be arrested too and so they ran out of there Jesus has taken almost uh, a place of holding to the chief priest's house to hang out for a while they question in there they, they say some not nice things they gather the Jewish ruling council and they hold a, a, a mock court because it wasn't legal they were doing it at a time it wasn't legal they were doing it in private which wasn't legal um, but they were doing it in such a way that they wanted to get done what they wanted to get done, manipulating the circumstances. And so they start questioning Jesus and hounding Jesus and saying very angry things to Jesus, bringing in some fake witnesses. And then they cart Jesus off when the time is right to the governor 
because the governor's the only one who had authority to execute him. And they take him in there to the governor, and they say, we want him executed. But they don't just say he claims to be God. They say he's setting himself up against Caesar. They're trying to manipulate the situation again because the governor's not going to care if he's claiming to be God, but he is going to care if he's trying to mount an insurrection against Caesar. And the governor is bothered by this because he's heard of Jesus. And uh, they, they make a comment that he had done some miracles in a region called Galilee. Well, the, the Roman guy in charge of Galilee just happened to be in town too. He said, well, send him over to him. In his mind, the governor's thinking, then I don't have to mess with this. I don't have to deal with it. I don't have to, uh, 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 you know, get my hands dirty here. And so he sends Jesus over to see Herod, uh, who was in charge of the region of Galilee. And Jesus goes into Herod, won't talk to him. Well, Herod and his men begin to mock Jesus and beat Jesus, uh, put some fancy clothes on him and send him back over to the governor. And Jesus comes into the governor and uh, all the while the mob is outside along with their Jewish religious leaders and they're chanting and they're shouting all kinds of things. And uh, the governor comes out and says, this man is not guilty of anything. He's innocent. And they say, we want him crucified. We want him gone. Do away with him. And the governor, being a politician and being a Roman, knew that the power of Rome was in the mob. And so he wanted to keep the mob happy because that would keep Rome happy. And so he gave them the authority to crucify Jesus. And so they take Jesus off after having beaten him again. And at this point, He's all kinds of bloody, blood's pouring everywhere from every wound he's got, all over the ground, every step he takes. And he carries the cross beam of his cross to outside the city where they were going to crucify him up on this hill. And at this point, it's 9 a.m. They nail him to the cross. They've dug a little hole. They drop the cross in the hole. Jesus bounces as they drop him in the hole, having nailed his wrists and his feet. They fill the hole in, so the cross stands there. He's got two guys crucified next to him. It's outside the city. People in the city can see it. It's on a hill, and everybody walking into the city can walk past this situation and see it. And Jesus is hanging there on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., six hours. He's on the cross. Noon arrives, and darkness falls, complete darkness over everywhere. Hours tick by around 3 p.m., just short of 3 p.m., which is very significant. Jesus makes a few statements, a few quick statements, and then, <laughs> and then at 3 p.m., now, mind you, this was Passover, and some of you who, who are very Bible literate will know this. Um, for the rest of us, we'll have to look this up, but 3 p.m. was when they, at Passover, would kill the Passover lamb to eat that evening. And so right at 3 p.m., as the Passover lambs are being killed in the temple, Jesus dies. Look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. So this is what happens. 
Jesus dies. And in that moment, at 3 o'clock, they're in the temple, they're, they're sacrificing the lambs, and the curtain in the temple, this is the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where God's presence was supposed to reside. That represented God's presence. And the curtain that separated that from everybody else is torn in two. This is a thick curtain. This isn't like a piece of paper type of deal. This is super thick. It's torn from top to bottom. We're talking dozens of feet in the air. Nobody can get up there. The only way this, this deal tears is God does it. And so while they're there sacrificing the lambs, this curtain tears in two, representing God's presence being accessible to everybody because of the death of Jesus. Jump down to verse 54. And the centurion, this is the guy in charge of the troops who were crucifying Jesus. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. And so there's recognition in Jesus' death and the incredible moment that is there. Now, you have to understand something, too, about crucifixion. Crucifixion may have been the most excruciating, worst way to execute somebody in the history of the world. And Romans were very good at it. They would try to drag out a person's life over the course of several days so the suffering lasted several days. And so Jesus giving up his spirit and dying in six hours was unheard of. They see this, they witness this, and they're shocked. He gave up his spirit and he died on his own. Look at verse uh, 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. Now this is significant because Matthew, in writing this, calls Joseph a disciple of Jesus. Joseph was also a member of the Jewish ruling council. The council that convicted Jesus. We learn uh, uh, that in, from another gospel that Joseph did not approve of their voting to kill Jesus because of this statement right here. He's a disciple of Jesus and he's there on the council that condemns Jesus. Can you imagine being a dissenter in that room? All those guys are angry, throwing spit, screaming, crucify him, and there's Joseph. I don't think we should kill him, guys. They take the vote. All in favor? Everybody in the room. Aye! All opposed? Quiet. And then Joseph speaks up. No. Would have attracted quite a bit of ire himself. But he was a known disciple of Jesus for 58. So Joseph... He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So Joseph, Joseph again, Joseph is a Jew. The next day is the Sabbath. And so he's trying to get Jesus off of the cross and in the tomb before Sabbath begins. And Sabbath for the Jews began uh, when the sun went down, at sundown. It's like 6 or 7 o'clock in the evening. And so he's trying to get this done before the sun goes down. Because if he's doing what he's doing and taking Jesus, putting him in the tomb on the Sabbath, then he would not be able to go to the temple and worship if he was doing the burial on the Sabbath. So he's trying to get it done. So they didn't have enough time to go through the full burial ritual that they typically go through. He just gets Jesus down, covers him in the cloth, puts him in the tomb, puts the, the stone in front of the tomb, 
And normally, uh, tombs had stones. Most tombs had stones. And they would seal it with some kind of clay because they were afraid of animals getting in. And so he takes the stone, he rolls it, they seal it with this clay, and then he goes so that he can spend the next day, well, in grief, but still worshiping. Verse 62, the next day, so Saturday, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Now, this is also important. It's, it's fascinating to me. Because his, his, Jesus' own disciples had run away scared and hidden in an upper room because they forgot this very thing that these Pharisees just said. The disciples forgot Jesus said he was going to raise from the dead. But Jesus' enemies, the guys who considered themselves enemies of Jesus, remembered that he said he was going to raise from the dead. And so they go to Pilate. And look at what they say, verse 64. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the, until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So they sealed it. Now the stone, remember I said the stones were usually sealed with clay. This kind of seal would have been like an official Roman seal that was made to uh, uh, reveal if there had been any tampering done. And so they seal it with this Roman seal. They put a guard there. We don't know how many men were in the guard. We just know that there was a guard. More than one person was there, but they were there uh, to guard this, tone, this, this stone, this tomb uh, from potential uh, grave robbers. And in that moment, disciples in an upper room, hiding, scared. The rest of Jesus' disciples weeping. Hope was gone. Hope was buried. Some guys, these, these Pharisees, these chief priests, even tried to be extra thorough to ensure hope would not return and did everything they could to keep hope away the enemy actually thought he won we saw this a few weeks ago in a message we were talking about Judas when he when Judas went to tell the Pharisees the chief priests that he wanted to betray Jesus it actually says in scripture before he went to them Satan entered him so it was Satan's plan to kill Jesus he thought killing Jesus would bring him victory he had no idea God's hand was in the whole deal. He thought killing Jesus would remove any ounce of hope that his followers might have at a future, at salvation. And so Satan did the very thing he was hoping to do, the very thing he was trying to do. He killed Jesus. He killed the hope. But if you really think about it, what exactly is hope? The word in the original language in scripture, it means a feeling of positive expectation. A feeling of positive expectation. But this kind of hope is different from how we might think of hope. He's not talking about, I hope that you, I have tacos tomorrow. Or, I hope that I get a good grade. Or, or I hope that, you know, that one family member is bringing that dessert today. Or, I hope that the preacher gets done early. Or, I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a vain hope. I hope... 
<laughs> it's not like that. Kind of, it's not even going to the doctor and say, I hope for a good report. That's not the kind of hope this is talking about. This kind of hope, this is, this is an eternal hope. This is a hope that can endure no matter what circumstances life throws at you. No matter what decisions people in your family might make. This is a kind of hope that cannot be undone no matter how you're feeling today. No matter how your body is ailing today. No matter the waves of grief that hit you today. This hope endures in the midst of all of that because of where this hope is based. You see, the disciples didn't understand that yet. Everything for them died with Jesus on the cross. They had sacrificed. They had uh, abandoned the lives they knew and dedicated everything to the hope that Jesus was going to bring salvation, to the hope that Jesus was the Son of God, to the hope that he was going to usher in salvation. But all of that hope, from the perspective of the disciples, died with Jesus on the cross. But Sunday morning came. Look at verse 1 of Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Great earthquake. And the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and set on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. Now this description was very important. This actually comes from the book of Daniel. This description, appearance like lightning, is given in the book of Daniel of Jesus, and clothing as white as snow is given of God himself. And so this angel descending from heaven, descending from the Lord, is displaying characteristics of God. He came straight from the presence of God and he's displaying the Lord's characteristics. This is also a challenge for us as believers. If we come from the presence of the Lord on a consistent basis, we should be displaying his characteristics everywhere we go. You see, they look at this angel and they see he looks like God. How many of us as Christians going about our daily lives can people say, man, they are acting like Jesus today? When you're waiting in line at Walmart. When you're calling the internet company for the 15th time this past week because it went out again. Can the person you talked to on the other end of the line say, man, they were talking like Jesus today. In getting ready to come to church this morning, can everybody in your house say, man, they were acting like Jesus. Putting on their Easter clothes. Man, they were just acting like Jesus. Woo! But this angel, appearance like lightning, clothing as white as snow, displaying these characteristics of God. Verse 4. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So the guards just dropped down, playing possum, saying, maybe they won't see me. <laughs> I mean, because they were put there to stop the disciples coming and stealing from the grave. They had no training to deal with an angel coming out of the sky and rolling the stone by himself. Say, this is beyond me. Can't you imagine the first 
soldier that dropped to the ground and acted dead, the other guys were like, well, I'm going to do that too. <laughs> That's a pretty good idea. Uh, and, and so they're all laying there on the ground. So try to picture it in your head. Stone rolled out, angel sitting there on the, on the stone, just kind of leaning back. Like, this is, this is a great Sunday morning. And, the, and laying down there on the ground are all those soldiers, probably peeking out. Is he still there? Still? Okay, he's still there. Shh, be quiet. And they're all laying there. And here come the women to finish the, the, the burial ceremony, coming to the tomb. Uh, verse 5. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. Look at this statement. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. Now, this statement that the angel gives is remarkable. He gives here, he gives a statement of truth. He is not here, he is risen. He gives a statement of reminder, as he said, and then a statement of confirmation. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. He makes a statement. He's not here. He's risen. As he said, come and see. Come and take a look. Verse 7. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So this is the first divine assignment given post-resurrection and it's one of evangelism. It's one of going and telling the good news of great joy. He t so these women are the first evangelists. He says, go and tell the disciples. Those guys hiding scared. You're out here bringing, you're coming to the tomb. They're afraid of everything. And they're locked themselves in a room. You go and tell them Jesus is alive. You tell them. You tell them what you saw. You go up there and you tell those guys. Look at verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to tell his disciples. There was no hesitation, sense of urgency. Verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They worshipped him. There was Jesus right there. Met him. Greetings. I, I, you know, you read things in scripture and you wonder often, maybe you don't, I, I often wonder, what was the inflection? Like, how did he say that? Greetings! I like surprise. Greetings! <laughs> like, I mean, I know Jesus had a sense of humor. I mean, he's God. He created laughter. But he, I kind of sense it's excitement. Like, I can't wait for them to see what they're about to see. I can't. Kind of like uh, uh, waiting for your kids to see what you gave them on Christmas morning. Like, you're so excited. This is the very thing they've been hoping for. Greetings! And just their faces explode. <gasps> and they run up to him, and they grab his feet, and they're, you're, you're alive! And they're grabbing him, and they're worshiping him. The overwhelming joy of that moment. The, <laughs> the honesty of that moment. And the greatness of that moment. I want to ask him, what did it feel like? Like, you were there on Saturday, you saw him die on Friday, and then you saw him on Sunday. What was that like? What was that run from seeing Jesus to the disciples? What was that like? I mean, they were running before, right? They were running from the tomb. The angel told them Jesus is alive, but it's a different kind of run once you've encountered Jesus. They were running because the angel said they'd seen an angel, but now they've seen Jesus. 
It's an all new, I, like, I'm going to get there. You guys have, I've seen him. I've touched him. He's alive. Hope had been dead. Hope had been lost. Because Jesus was dead. But here on Sunday morning, death doesn't mean the same thing anymore. Death doesn't mean the same thing anymore. Jesus, coming back from the dead, Jesus changed the very nature of death in this moment. Nothing was ever going to be the same again. You say, but wait a minute, Jesus raised people from the dead. He did. He raised Lazarus from the dead. There was a kid in the city of Nain. He raised him from the dead. Jesus raised these other people from the dead, but they had to die again. They had to die a second time. They weren't going to live in this same physical body for all time. They were going to have to die again and get a new body. But Jesus raising here was never going to die again. And that's a guarantee for all of us that we will live again. Paul says he was the first fruits of those who will raise. That's us. We will raise. We will receive new eternal bodies. It will be for all time. Death will never be the same again. It reminded me of a story that I came across the other day. Uh, uh, there was a guy, his name, I've got it here in my notes. Uh, where is it? Neil Papworth. How many of you know Neil Papworth? He changed all of your lives, and you don't even know it. In December 3rd, 1992, is a turning point in the history of the world. Before that day, telephones only made and received phone calls. They didn't do anything else. They only made and received phone calls. Neil worked at a phone company. And all his office, all his bosses, all his co-workers were at a Christmas party. But Neil wasn't. He was back in his office. He's an engineer. He was working on a project. Back in his office, working on this project. He's trying to wrap his head around how is this possible. And he does something that had never been done before on December 3rd, 1992. He sent a text message to his boss at the Christmas party. And it said, Merry Christmas. From that point forward, there was an idea that phones could do more than they could before. From that point forward, phones were never the same again. Who's got a phone in here, in your pocket, in your purse, that can only make phone calls? None of you. Even if you've got a dumb phone and not a smartphone, it can still do stuff. You can still play snake on that deal. You can still make text messages, even if you've got to hit the button several times to get the right letter. Some of the kids are like, what in the world? Hit a button more times to get a letter? What are you talking about? Uh, if any of you have those indestructible Nokia phones, instruct your kids in the ways of the world. But phones were never the same again because of Neil Papworth. He changed the world in that moment, and nobody looked back. Jesus changed the world in the moment he rose from the dead. Death doesn't mean the same anymore in the same way that a phone doesn't mean the same anymore. If you were to go back in time 40 years and say, I'm going to check my email and pull out your cell phone, everybody's going to look at you funny. If you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to play a quick game and you pulled out your phone, everybody's going to look at you funny. Because it's not the same anymore. Phone doesn't mean the same anymore. For the Christian, death doesn't mean the same anymore. It doesn't. Death doesn't mean the same anymore. Death is the front door to everything that is good and better and perfect. Death. 
Death doesn't stop us. It's just the next step in the process. Death isn't the same because of what Jesus did that day. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? This, this is actually a paraphrase of an Old Testament scripture, Hosea 13, 14. But Paul puts a little twist on it here. Because what's going on here in the, in the prophecy from Hosea, and Paul is reiterating, uh, 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 reiterating here in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, is uh, the end of death, the death of death. Death had reigned supreme with great fear and finality since the beginning of the world. But when Jesus rose from the death, victory was no longer in the hands of death. The sting of death was no longer there. You know, the, when, when the end comes, jumping ahead to Revelation, you know the first ones to get thrown into hell? Satan and death. Because we won't need either one. No, not, neither one will exist any longer from that point forward. There will be no more temptation, no more sin, and no more death. Death will end, which we can try to wrap our heads around that concept, but we can't because all we know in this existence is death. Everything dies. The grass dies. Some of us pray for the death of grass so we can stop mowing in the summer. You know, people die. Uh, uh, animals die, and there's sadness and grief, and that exists in this world, and it will always until the end comes because death will stop. Stop completely. Death, as Paul said there, where, death, is your victory? Where is your sting? So not only does death end, but because death ends with the resurrection of Jesus, hope lives. Hope lives. Hope is still around. Hope still exists. Hope lives not because the doctor says to have hope. Hope lives not because the stock market happens to be up. Hope lives not because your bank account looks nice. Hope lives not because your boss said you might get a promotion come the end of the year. Hope lives not because, kids, you got good grades. Hope lives not because you're playing sports and the scout happens to come to a game. You're playing real good. Hope lives not because so-and-so showed up and, and they always brighten your day. Hope lives not because everything is going right in your life and you feel good today. Hope lives because Jesus lives. That's it, period, end of sentence. It has nothing to do with how you feel and how things are going. Hope lives singularly because Jesus lives. That's how you can still have hope when everything is going terrible. That's how you can still have hope when life just continues to drop bombs right in the middle of your front yard. Hope lives when you have no way of knowing what tomorrow is going to look like because today was so terrible. Hope lives no matter what is going on. No matter how your brain is being, feels like it's being taken over by the enemy because of the anxiety. Hope lives because uh, no matter what's happening with your kids, no matter what's happening with your parents, no matter what's happening with your spouse, no matter what is happening with your own health and you're awaiting a phone call coming Tuesday and you don't know what's going to happen and you're in all this confusion, hope lives no matter what comes on the other end of that phone call because Jesus lives. Hope lives. Hope continues on no matter how bad this world gets because the hope 
is in Jesus, is in eternity. Because even once this world passes away, Jesus still is. Hope lives because Jesus lives. And so the question for everyone in the room, everybody watching online, in what do you put your hope? Where is your hope? If you were to examine the way you've thought about life, let's just say these last few weeks, the last few months, last couple years that have been crazy, is your hope in an, a positively expected future, is your hope alive? Or is your hope dead? Is your hope floundering around, just barely hanging on because you don't see a future? Because you don't know how in the world you're going to make it. You don't know how you're going to pay that bill. You don't know how you're going to survive. You don't know how everything's going to come out. You don't know how it's going to play out. Is your hope tied to that? Is your hope tied to getting to the end of the week and having more good experiences than bad? Because that's not eternal hope. That may be just happiness. I feel good if I'm more happy than I am sad, then I feel great. But that's not the kind of hope we're talking about. This kind of hope will last for all time. This kind of hope is resilient. This kind of hope stands firm no matter what's coming against it. Whether it be 55 tanks, 3,000 troops, 24 artillery vehicles, hope still exists because of Jesus. Because of Jesus and Jesus alone. So today, wherever you find yourself in your journey for hope, whether you need to refind your hope because your eyes have been on the bombardment that has been all over your life. Or you need to find hope for the first time today. What better day than Easter? Say, you know what? Mm, I really do need some hope. I need hope. My, my feeling of hope has ebbed and flowed with the political climate or whatever the news puts on my social media feed and I don't know how to, how, to, how to go at it anymore. Then you need Jesus because hope will still exist in your spirit because Jesus lives. So that's, that's the end-all, be-all question. That's the whole reason we're here, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Will you believe in Jesus today? This can be your spiritual birthday. He can give you spiritual open-heart surgery right there in the middle of a green pew. You can put spiritual blood all over that stuff. We've still got Christmas Eve candle wax that I spilled. <laughs> Will you believe in Jesus today? Will you believe that Jesus is God's son? That he died so all your sins would be forgiven? All of them. Even that word you said this morning. Even that thing you did yesterday. Even the stuff you're going to do in a week that you don't even know yet. The stuff that you replay in your head 50 times a week. Man, if I, could go, if I had me a DeLorean, I'd go back in time and I would, stop, I, would, I would not do that. He forgave that. It's already forgiven. 
if you believe in Jesus? Will you believe in him today? Find forgiveness, find freedom, find hope. Will you believe in Jesus today? And then also believe that he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. A guarantee of heaven. In John 14, he says, I will come again and take you to where I am. That's a promise from the Son of God. You will go where he is. Are you ready? Are you ready? Will you come to Jesus today? Come to him and say, I need hope. I want hope. I want Jesus. I want to follow him. I don't want to feel this way and, and, and allow my hope to be, to be sucked out by all these experiences and all this stuff that's happening. I just want my hope to be secure and found in Jesus. And if you want to believe in him, do it now. You don't got to say a bunch of magic words. You don't got to live better than you, you do more good things than bad things. That's not the way salvation works. Salvation works simply by believing Jesus, God's son, died for you, rose for you. That's it. And then Jesus says, then he holds you firmly in his hand once you believe. And I don't know about you, I'm not stronger than God. Well, I do know about you. You're not. You're not, spoil, you're not stronger than God. Just put it out there. You may think you are. You may act like you are sometimes, but you're not stronger than God. And there's no sin you can do that is more powerful than the death and resurrection of Jesus because you're not stronger than God. You cannot undo what he already did. And so once you believe in Jesus, you are safe and secure for all time. All time. So will you believe in Jesus today? Will you find that hope today?